Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here are your co-hosts, Shenandoah Connor and Barron's Hall of Fame top advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Welcome everyone to the podcast. I am your host, Shenandoah Connor, and hosting with me is always the ever-talented Jonathan Cutton. Say hi, John. Ever-talented. I like that. How are you, Shen? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. Hanging in there and uh, you know, continuing to work with a lot of advisors and seeing some, you know, continually seeing trends and things coming up. And uh, I know today we wanted to talk about one of those trends that we see pretty often with advisors, and that is around cultivating next generation talent and how that impacts your firm. Yeah, no, great one. And um, I was happy that you actually wanted to interview me today. I was starting to get uh, a little bit of a complex. I know we've had a lot of of great guests on lately, so. uh, I know you need attention, John. We make sure you get it every now and then. (laughs) Yes, every once in a while. I like to, like to uh, be made to feel a little important, absolutely. So thank you for placating that. So yeah, you know, I think the genesis of uh, our thought for this podcast came from uh, you know, a small event that I did recently uh, with, I think there were probably 12 or maybe 15 advisors uh, as part of kind of a growth forum. And, you know, it, it occurred to me and, you know, became very, uh, you know, kind of just easy to see how advisors seem to get stuck at a certain level in kind of that practitioner mode. And this was a room um, of, like I said, 12 or 15 advisors and the average production in the room was probably somewhere between say 750 and a million uh, in revenue annualized. And they all seem to have the same problems over and over again. Um, And where the conversation ultimately went was it becomes really difficult to grow a business over or past that kind of million, maybe even million and a half level without developing that next gen talent. So I know, um, you know, it's uh, my coach kind of, kind of sometimes shares with me that I have the curse of knowledge, he calls it, which basically means, you know, being able to kind of see where things are heading. Um, so I thought that would be a great topic for today. And, and you agreed. So here we are. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely something that we see, like you said, it's that bar that that they hit or that that kind of a ceiling that they hit. The only way to get over that hump is to start cultivating other leaders within your firm. And I know this is something that is really, you know, paramount to what you've done in your practice is is attracting that talent, but also cultivating once they're in there. So if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, what it takes to attract those next gen leaders, the ones that are really going to take your firm ahead? Because I think that's part of why some advisors don't want to do it is they're they're worried about bringing somebody in that isn't a producer or they've done it and they run into that experience where they brought somebody in and they, they really didn't have a positive impact on the firm. It's a different approach when you're actually trying to cultivate another really, you know, strong producer in your practice. So if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I think, I think um, I have a, a million thoughts, as you know, about that. <laughs> I think, you know, I would frame it out this way. I think there's kind of two distinct type of candidates that advisors generally look to bring into their practice, right? 
Um, and we could, we could talk about both. So one is what I would call kind of the, the newer person to the industry, right? So this could be a recent college graduate or a, a, a career changer, um, someone who maybe isn't even licensed yet if you're still in the type of business that requires licenses, meaning you're not uh, RIA only. Um, so I think that there is a candidate that looks like that, which needs to learn the ropes more in a support role and then be able to grow within the organization and creating a proper career track. And then I think secondly, there is um, you know, a producer, as you call it, who's been in the industry, who has all of his or her licenses, et cetera, uh, and is ready to contribute immediately. You know, and I think there are two very different paths. So um, do you have a preference, Shenandoah? Do you want to talk about one first or? No, I, that's a great idea. I think first let's address why you might want to go after both. I know some do kind of one or the other, but why would you want to first take a mixed approach with having cultivating talent from both of these channels? Yeah, sure. No, great question. I think, um, and, I, and, I, and we've had a lot of success in our practice with both. Um, it was a challenge earlier uh, in my career when we were just starting to kind of figure out leadership and how to develop folks and career track and that kind of thing. Um, but depending on where an advisor is in his or her career, right, um, and what they're looking to do, I think would dictate which candidate is the right type of candidate. Um, and sometimes you need both at the same time. Um, but most advisors, again, in that 750 to say million two range, um, probably are not yet ready to give up full control of being a practitioner um, just yet, nor do they likely have to, right? And I, I say that because, again, they can, they can likely run that business on their own quite efficiently. Um, so in that scenario, I think it makes a lot of sense to bring in someone slightly less experienced, right? And again, earlier I said they could have no licenses, recent college grad, career changer. Could also be someone who has five, six, seven years, 10 years in the business that hasn't necessarily grown a large business yet, but has the ability to provide value, um, maybe a little bit more in the technical and administrative part of the practice. Um, and, and in, in essence, become a junior advisor. So, you know, one of the things we do a lot of in our practice, and I've helped a lot of advisors do uh, in their own practices, is actually run what I call um, kind of jokingly the doctor nurse model, right? Where a newer candidate who might not, you know, have a decade of experience sits with the advisor in kind of a junior seat but can actually learn and develop by running the back end of the business, right? So preparing for meetings, being taught how to properly do that, running morning stars, looking at asset allocation, preparing financial plans, and kind of sitting in the second seat in meetings to ultimately perform the follow through, right? I call it the after work that comes after a meeting um, and could be participatory uh, in the meeting, but more in a second chair let the, the lead advisor, likely someone listening to this podcast, kind of do his or her thing, but have someone else there to be able to run the system and process. We've done that really effectively uh, in our business. And over time, what happens if you do that well and you have the right system and process, and I like to call it the fertile soil, right, to develop that younger uh, candidate, ultimately what happens over a couple of years is they become what I call client ready 
Um, mm -hmm. And you'll start to determine that your clients are actually comfortable working with he or she. And that's when you start to look to segment the business a little bit where you as the lead or senior advisor can work with the higher end part of the client base. And that junior advisor that I'm describing might be able to take on full responsibility um, of, of the kind of the, the bottom two quartiles, let's say, uh, of the practice as a whole. So I think that's, that's sort of that vertical, right, with that newer, less experienced person. And I think the more experienced advisor that can bring a book of business over, I think a lot of folks in the industry focus a lot of time there, um, and rightfully so. And I think we focus a lot of time there because we look at those candidates that can bring a book of business over um, as a potential profit stream, right? Where mm -hmm. as an independent advisor or an RIA, you might be able to recruit someone out of a wirehouse or um, a regional firm and be able to improve margins, right? Because of the risk you've taken as an independent. Um, so a bit of a different scenario. Um, and I think there it's really important that you really select the right candidate because what you're also sort of bringing into your business is someone who is looking to make a change, which likely means they're not happy where they were, right? Otherwise right, they right. wouldn't be making a change. Um, and quite frankly, usually they're making a change because they haven't been quite as successful um, as they've hoped at, you know, at this juncture in their career. And a lot of times they come with some bad habits, right? They mm -hmm. come with a way of doing business um, that is fixable, but you have to really dig a little bit deeper to make sure that they're going to be the right cultural fit uh, in the organization, et cetera. So I, I think both ultimately work. Um, and I also believe it, it as an advisor listening in here, you have to think some about what your vision is for your practice. Do you wanna run a tighter business um, that has a team kind of behind you, supporting you, working on a true team basis? Or do you wanna have different producers in your organization that might run kind of their play a little differently than the rest of the firm does in bringing out in an outside recruit. So I know that's a lengthy answer, but um, that's, that's kind of how I think about it. No, I think that was a great answer and it really helps break it down um, because uh, yeah, a lot of firms concentrate on one or the other, but one mistake I see a lot of firms make is they think that new hires are going to be plug and play and they really need, even if it's someone who, like you said, is experienced, has their own book of business, they still are going to need some type of training onboarding in order to make them truly a part of your practice, your vision, the direction you're going. So you're working together and you're, it, it actually helps meet the goals, your reason for bringing them on board, like whether it's to grow or to add a vertical or whatever the case may be. And so that's something I, I really wanted to kind of hone in on because in the recruiting process, what I see um, just in terms of like trying to go out there and find whether it's a college, um, you know, fresh out of college person or it's an experienced advisor, so many people focus on the compensation or they focus on the numbers, but there's a lot of other things that you need to do to really attract this talent and cultivate that talent so that really, you know, you meet the goals that you put forth and when you were actually starting to recruit in the first place. Um, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit is, um, you know, what? what is it that is going to attract someone to your team? I know right now it's heavy recruiting season, it seems like, or, or you know, and trying to bring that, that next generation in. But thinking about it uh, the way that you described it, especially if you're bringing in younger advisors, that's a, that's a long time investment. 
And if you're making that investment, you want to make sure that it's going to, um, it's going to stay basically. You don't want to lose them as soon as you get them. <laughs> yeah, no, good, good question. I think, um, you hit a bunch of things there. So, right. you know, the, the one thing that I would, um, kind of drill down on a little bit that I think you said that, that makes a lot of sense is as an advisor looking, um, to start to hire a junior, right. Or, or a partner even for that matter, mm -hmm. um, even if you've done it in the past, but not quite as successfully as you might hoped, um, you know, being very clear in what you do as an advisor and what your process is and what you ultimately deliver to your clientele in the form of a client experience becomes really important, right? So I find a lot of advisors um, provide a good client experience to their clients, but it's not necessarily documented and process driven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not driven with, you know, kind of written KPIs that are tracked and measured. So the first thing I would share is if you're going to add talent to your team, you're now in a leadership role, right? And there's a big difference between managing an administrative person to kind of do tasks for you and actually bringing in an advisor to actually support the client relationships mm -hmm. and client experience throughout your practice. So I think it's really important to have a written service model um, with steps. We actually, within our practice, believe it or not, um, don't quote me, I might be off on the number of steps, but I think <laughs> our client service model um, actually has 62 steps in it. Hmm. I know that sounds obscene, 62 steps in a client service model, but these are little steps as detailed as you know, after a review meeting, the client will get a summary letter, right? Within 24 hours, right. they'll get what we call a morning after call to check in, right? And they'll, we'll schedule their next quarterly visit while we're in the meeting that we're in. So that one meeting is four little steps, if that right. you know, makes sense. But when you have things written and documented, there is no um, kind of looseness, if you will, or, or lack of understanding from the folks who kind of join your team and support you. So I think one thing that's really important is having a process. And I think, you know, the other piece that you were, you know, you were asking about, I think, is around kind of, you know, the culture, right? And what- Right, right. Yeah, so I- yeah. I can share, and I made this mistake early on in my career for sure. Um, and you know, I, I think a lot about you know your own self awareness, right? As an advisor that's becoming a leader in your practice, it's it's hard to be self aware enough to know how those you're leading are actually feeling, right? Right. Uh, but one of the keys that people forget is what's the career track, right? So when you bring in new talent. Um, just think about if you took a new job tomorrow, right? What, what you're, you're excited about this job, generally it's not just about the current compensation and economics, right? It's actually around career path. How do I go from paraplanner or licensed paraplanner or junior advisor to a senior advisor or a servicing advisor and then a, se a senior advisor how do I become a profit partner or an equity partner, right? So one of the things we've established probably about six or seven years ago, which has had a huge impact, is what's a career track? How do you come in um, maybe as, as at an intern level, right? And how do you go from an intern level to a senior equity partner of a firm, right? So having that right career track 
And then I think most importantly, it's, you know, the biggest asset, Shenandoah, um, and advisors don't really understand this until they create some level of scale. Think about what you spend money on in your practice. If you're listening in right now, chances are your single biggest expense in your practice is likely staff, if you have staff, right? right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, the industry, right, or the, the world, I guess, you know, would look at that and, you, you know, you would look at that and think about your payroll as your, and your people as your biggest asset. So you have to think about what are the systems and processes in place for you to develop your people um, and how do you do that consistently through a process where they understand where it is you're going um, right. and ultimately understand how they get what they want for themselves. So you know very much, Shenandoah, a big part of our practice is this Woody Woofy process that we talk about right. sometimes, which again is a refresher, stands for what do you want for yourself? So how do you support this junior person on your team so that he or she can ultimately get what they want and they know that you're there to support them and have the tools and ability to get them where they want to go? No, absolutely. I think you really nailed it on the head there that you need that process and that culture, that process for how you do everything in the business so you can train someone else on how to do it and create that consistent experience for clients, no matter who's serving them and, and making sure that nothing's getting missed. And uh, I, I mean, that's a foundation for scale. And then that culture piece, um, you know, for being able to create an environment that attracts people. I know we talk a lot about our values and our vision and our mission, having those defined, and then also being able to create a culture that is focused on developing your talent and developing your people. Like you said, it's, it's your biggest expense, but it's your biggest asset too. If you make that investment in developing your team. And, and that's where I really feel that many advisors are not doing that. They're not investing in their people. They're expecting them to show up and deliver, but they're not um, putting any skin in the game themselves. They think, well, I'm paying you. Um, but really, I mean, you, you can, if you invest in your people, it returns a thousandfold. And, and we, I think you've seen that many times. Yeah, no, when you, when you think back, um, you know, when I, when I grew up in the industry back in the, you know, the nineties, right. The mid nineties, when I started, um, leadership was kind of a, what I like to call a kind of control and demand style, right. right. Where if you were a leader, you simply told people what to do and they did it. I said, jump. People said how high and, and, and by the way, that's yeah, how I the was. The management style of the nineties. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. And, and now I guess the buzzword is servant leadership, right? Right. Which is, um, you know, is all around serving those who work for you um, and helping them get what they want for themselves. And if you can do that effectively, um, the hope is that you'll also get what you want for yourself as well. So if you're not developing your talent, um, you're just, in my opinion, super wasteful of your payroll. If you're just hiring people to do tasks for you, um, you will likely never scale beyond yourself and you right. will hit this ceiling of about a million or a million and a half a year in revenue um, and you'll be stuck there. And quite frankly, that's where most advisors get stuck. And, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Lots of advisors are super happy to have a lifestyle practice. If you could do a million two in revenue, right? And, you know, get a nice payout rate in an independent firm, or for that matter, at a wirehouse or a regional firm, you know, be it a 40, 50, 60% net payout rate, depending on 
where you sit on the independent or, you know, or wire regional side, do mm-hmm. a two in revenue. Um, you know, if you can net out at 50%, make $600,000 a year, that's a great living, right? Um, to scale beyond there, it has to be through adding talent, developing talent, and having a executable you know, uh, process and system. You know, and that leads me to, you know, when you think about recruits, I've been saying the same thing to recruits for, you know, probably a dozen plus years, right? And I always ask the same question. Um, I ask the recruit, I say, generally in the financial, you know, planning or advising business, um, advisors are either finders, minders, or grinders. Mm-hmm. Okay. A finder is generally good at business development and prospecting and bringing clients in. A minder is generally good at relationship management, right? Developing deep, meaningful relationships, caring a lot about their clients, winning, you know, winning the business from their clients, um, but having clients who really, really appreciate the work that they do for them. And then grinders are all about kind of getting stuff done, right? So generally in most financial planning practices today, um, those are the folks who are put, putting together proposals and financial plans and setting appointments and filling out paperwork and such. So I usually ask the advisor, you know, do you think your skill set is mostly finder, minder, and grinder? And what I'll share with you is probably, I'm making up a statistic, but I would bet 95% of the time or so, the answer I get is minder, right? And the reason for that, when someone's a really good finder, they're generally growing the heck out of their business, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times a finder is also a good minder, but their natural tendency is to grow, right? Right. Work on multiplying, not necessarily simplifying, um, but to to basically market and do business development and acquire and build relationships with CPAs and do seminars and, and grow a business. So we've had the most success bringing minders into the business who really care about clients, want to deliver an exceptional experience, but quite frankly, just don't yet have um, enough clients to deliver that to because right. they're not so good at the finding part. And that's, that's probably you know, 95% of the financial services space. Um, you'll find the most successful people were good finders. And there's no shame uh, in not having that skill set. That's the hardest work I think there is. So I share all that to say, as you're out recruiting, if you can put systems and processes in place that allow your firm to attract minders, which is what mm-hmm. we do in our practice, right? Where you can help take the responsibility of finding new clients off the plate of an advisor, and you can actually compensate them reasonably well to do so, um, they'll be happy to actually join your team and just be really good at what they do. Um, the secret to that is it's really hard, right? Some advisors are the finder, minder, and grinder in right. their practice, right? So I, I was finder, minder, grinder um, for the first couple of years that I started the business. Um, but if you don't start to specialize, whether you're a finder, a minder, or a grinder, and focus time and energy and kind of create different divisions in your business to do that type of work, you're going to constantly be just spinning plates and never get great at any of those. So we found separating and having folks who do business development on my team bring clients into the firm, 
our financial advisors don't have an expectation to market at all outside of marketing to their existing clients, i.e. winning the business, getting introductions to friends and family, referrals, et cetera. Um, and then we have our staff and power planners who do a lot of that kind of grinding work for the advisor, right? So I think when an advisor can put that model in place, um, it becomes really attractive for advisors in the industry to join if they could just focus on what they're naturally good at and enjoy doing. Exactly. And, I, and that kind of brings me where a perfect segue into what I was going to uh, kind of ask and point us to next is, you know, this process and this culture, it's great at attracting talent, um, but it's not just about attracting any talent. I think it raises the quality of the talent that you get in your pipeline. And then it also improves your retention rate, because I know that's another thing is it's, it's getting not just any candidate, but a great candidate through the door and then keeping them and, and for long runs, you actually can see that return on your investment in that new talent. I'm gonna to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, finding the right talent um, is hard. No one comes into a job interview telling you all their flaws, right? No one tells you, <laughs> you know, I'm constantly late for work and, um, you know, and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, they're always perfect on the first, first date, first interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So, you know, when, when you build the right culture, right. Um, what we do in our firm today, and, and it's, it works really well is we just let people into the culture, right? So a couple of things that are important. Number one, I am a big believer of kind of personality tests, right? Colby and disc and things along those lines. Um, is very telling for sure, right? right? As you go through that process. And I also, I tend to Shenandoah, as you probably know, I tend to like everyone when I first meet them and think everyone is great. And, and if they're not doing well, I want to help them do well. And I think a lot of advisors have that tendency to, if someone's a nice person, they have a heartbeat and uh, right. come work where you want to take them. So um, we've made our mistakes. Today, we are much more kind of rigid, right, in, in kind of our process. But what we've done, we're really proud of our culture, right? So, you know, we've got our leadership coaching program that, you know, Ray, who was a past guest, runs. We've got our referral program that's run by Bill Cates, who, uh, you know, some of you have heard from recently on the podcast. We've got, you know, a, a tremendous leadership team in place. So we're a big believer of letting the advisor um, kind of come check out the culture to make sure he or she gets to see the kind of the good, the bad and the ugly, because we right. work really hard in our practice and we want advisors to know we work hard, um, but there's also reward for that. So I always have the advisor go through an interview process um, and you know they think that I'm doing it for them, right? So that they can actually kind of you know, get to meet everyone. But the truth be told, it's, it's a two-way street. Um, I get my best feedback from my advisors uh, and staff once they get to interact with the recruit to determine if they're going to be a good fit or not. Right, because that's also too where that true character comes out is they might be on their best behavior for, you know, the boss or the head honcho, but they'll default sometimes to their natural character when they're working with other advisors or support staff or people they feel like don't have power in the decision. And uh, that's how you can really understand what they're, what they're really like, what they're really made of. Yeah, it's a, I'll give you a great story. It just happened literally a few weeks ago. Had a candidate that I really enjoyed meeting. Um, super professional, 
had a nice book of business to bring over. Culturally seemed like a real good fit. I had him uh, meet with one of the other advisors on the team. And this was an advisor after every meeting. He sent me a handwritten note after our first meeting, a nice email summary, et cetera. Um, and when he met with one of the advisors on the team, um, he was a different person. I mean, literally, he was on a cell phone the whole time. He oh. was rude. Um, he actually, I, I had to meet um, our, um, yeah, Krista on our team, who you know well, right, who uh, kind of runs our operations. And um, he showed up 30 minutes late for that meeting with no apology to kind of learn about our benefits program and 401k and all that kind of good stuff and was a bit dismissive and arrogant. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and we decided not to hire the advisor, right? So that's yeah, just a great, uh, relevant, uh, you know, kind of example of something that happened not too long ago uh, with an advisor that I would have been fooled by because I thought he was really great and uh, was attracted to the book of business he can bring. But we decided based on the team's sort of thought process not to, not to bring him in. Well, and I think that brings up another really important point that you really have to protect the standards that you've established for your culture. Because I've seen too many advisors will compromise on those values or those culture points in order to get that monetary value they think is going to come from that advisor. But once you let in someone that isn't really representative of what you stand for, it's just an infection that can run through your practice and cause so much more damage than any benefit you could get from their book of business. Yeah, no, 150%. I mean, culture is what our business is all about. And most advisors, um, you know, we, most, most practices, I mean, my team, we're, we're about a 60 person team, which is large in the industry. I mean, most financial advisory businesses are an advisor and a staff person, or maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20 people for a larger size firm. Um, for sure. So, you know, Shen, the other thing that I was thinking, um, uh, you know, a little earlier that I, I, I forgot to mention, and I think this is a really important point for advisors to kind of think through, right? You know, just think about where you are in your career and what you're trying to build, right? And the, the reason I share that is um, to to be a good financial advisor, I think I had referenced once before the book, The Ensemble Practice, maybe in one of our first podcasts. And uh, it's a highly recommended read. Again, it's by a guy by the name of Philip Palaviv, who um, I think we're going to work on hopefully getting on. Yeah, hopefully I got to track down and get him on here, but that's our goal. Yeah. So what, what the book basically says, the Cliff Note version, um, is to be a financial advisor it's actually worth about 100 to 150,000 a year to do the job, right? Mm -hmm. So I share that because you know lots of us listening in make significantly more than that. And that's because you worked hard, you're a good finder, right? Um, you're a good salesperson, whatever it may be. But I share that because there are a ton of advisors out there that are making sub 100 to $150,000 a year, but they're really competent. They're just missing the business building skills, mm -hmm. right? And the opportunity that you have as an advisor who might've scaled a larger business than average, where you're might maybe you're making four, five, 600,000 a year. So here's the problem advisors have, and I see it literally all the time. Um, so this is the key, in my opinion, right? Is at, at some point, 
right? If you can't rid yourself of working with 100% of the clients that your firm has brought in by yourself and being the person who's actually providing the service and advice, then it becomes very difficult to scale over that million to million and a half dollar level, right? right. So, you know, if you think about your business, how can you bring someone else in who can do that hundred to $150,000 a year job for you so that you could free your time up so that you can continue to grow the business, whether that be through referrals, whether it be from CPAs, COIs, which you know is a tremendous part of our business, right. acquisitions, right? Buying mergers and acquisitions of other advisors, or quite frankly, other marketing right, techniques, seminars or networking or recruiting other advisors into your practice. Those are all those kind of quantum growth activities. But if, if you've got a business doing a million a year in revenue, right, the 80-20 rule always prevails in a business, right, where 80% of your business usually comes from the top 20% of your practice. So when you really dig down, if you're serving 250, 300 clients, like a lot of advisors are, you look at it, the top 100 clients out of those 250, right, generally represent 80, 90% of the client base, or I'm sorry, of the revenue of the client base. So if you can right size your business, work with the cream of the crop in your practice, which are usually people you like working with anyway, right. bring someone in to work with the others who has a system and process to run off of, generally speaking, they're going to do more business with those folks because you can't provide the same level of service to 300 clients as you can to 100. It then frees up your time ultimately so that you can work on being more of a CEO and ultimately growing the business. So I know intuitively everyone kind of understands that. The hard part is most advisors never get to do it. And I also just want to share, it sounds like you're, you're kind of like taking advantage of that advisor by saying, well, you're only worth 100 to $150,000 a year. If they're good at that role, I have folks that join my firm that make three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 a year that now have equity positions in the organization um, that couldn't grow a business on their own, right? right? But through our system and our process, being able to provide them with clients and a system to run them, and giving them that culture of leadership and all the things that go along it, they're now making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but they're doing the work that they actually like to do. And as the business owner, I'm okay doing that all day long. If I can get someone to run a business doing a million and a half a year in revenue, right? And pay them three, 350 a year over time as it grows, not right away, right? But right. to run that business, and another call at 150 a year in staff and other fringe expenses and benefits, et cetera. At the end of the day, that's a million dollars of profit for the firm, right? So everybody wins there. I have an advisor who takes great care of the clients, runs the model, has a great culture. He or she can make a few hundred thousand dollars a year and not have to pound the pavement and figure out where their next client is coming from. But that's because we've built systems to bring clients in and put advisors in business. So as you think about that, how can you build those systems in your own business, right? Two types of advisors listening right now, right? Some of the advisors are going, man, that's, that's exactly how I wanna build my business, right? 
Um, if you're that advisor, you have to ask yourself, do you have clients in your client base that you can have someone else serve? Or do you have a system in place to bring in lots of new clients? And there's lots of ways to do that that can keep an advisor busy with new work, right? right. So that's one type of advisor listening. The second advisor listening might be an advisor who only has 20 or 30 or 40 million of assets that has been in the business that is having trouble scaling because their natural talent isn't bringing new clients in. Right. But they're really good at serving clients and that's their calling. That's what they like to do. If you're that type of advisor, maybe you should be thinking, how do you partner with a larger team that could actually help you to get busier doing the work that you're good at? Because if you're good at that work, this is what I found, when you put people in the right seat of the bus, right? The advisor who's a great minder with the right client base will actually create offense. They will organically grow that business. Although they're not good at going out and finding clients you know, via prospecting, they can do really good work for clients, win all the business, and get them to introduce their friends and family because they have that skill set. And just about putting people in the right seats. No, absolutely. I think that was all, I mean, just very, uh, really, again, just defining where you want to go with your practice and how you might be able to um, either find that next-gen ta talent and plug it into your practice to scale, or maybe you are that next-gen talent and maybe you need to go to a larger firm. And that kind of brings me to our, our last point that I want us to talk about before we wrap up today. And you know, we've been talking about um, next generation talent and attracting that talent in terms of scale, but it's also a continuity factor. A lot of advisors don't have succession plans in place. They don't know who that next advisor is going to be. And sometimes they find themselves suddenly looking at retirement one to three years out and having to try and find someone, source someone that's going to be a good fit, take good care of their clients. This is a built-in succession plan. Uh, you wanna talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, no, great, great question. Um, yeah, could, could not agree more. Um, we acquire, as you know, a lot of financial planning practices. It's part of our growth strategy. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, most of the time when we acquire a practice, the seller is simply selling because he or she knows they don't have a successor in place, right? right. Um, so they're not even ready to sell most of the time, but they just know they're getting to that age. They've tried to bring someone in at some point and they didn't have the system and process in place to do it, which forces right. them to sell maybe earlier um, than they wanted to. So yeah, done, done correctly. Um, and again, for advisors, that's also a carrot, right? To attract the right next gen talent. And also if I was a next gen advisor, um, I would also be proactively looking for advisors who are in their 50s or you know maybe even you know early uh, mid mid 50s early 50s or older um, to come join their team right with the value prop of I want to come work for you because mm -hmm. I want to become your succession plan I'm going to bust my butt for the next eight or ten years to get it to a point that you can sell this business to me and you'll feel comfortable. Uh, that I can actually execute on that. But yeah, it protects the equity in the business. Um, and I think it can work either way. If you're a next-gen advisor, think about how you can position yourself to someone who's a bit older that might not have an exit. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're a, an advisor who hasn't figured out who his or her successor is going to be just yet, um, think about how you can use that as a kind of carrot 
right, to attract next gen talent uh, as well. And, you know, the other thing I would just share, I know we're getting a little short on time here, but is um, you know, recruiting becomes a business, right? You got to, you, you got to, you know, meet a lot of folks, number one, to get good at it and put a system and process in place. Um, and also, you, you can't just take the first, I, early in my career, I mean, when we needed someone, it was generally, um, it was, we were almost in crisis mode. We needed someone immediately, uh -huh. right? And if you showed up at the office and you were interested, you were, you were going to be hired, right? So I think it's important to hire before you actually need the talent. We've mm -hmm. all heard that before to build the bench, to have them kind of sitting, being mentored. It's hard to figure that cash flow out sometimes, um, but there's nothing better than to have someone prepared on your bench. So when an opportunity does present itself, you can actually execute on it. Absolutely. And one thing I want to add on that succession piece is, you know, sometimes too, like you said, you had an advisor who didn't have a successor. He had to sell earlier. You probably was selling maybe even for a little less. Oh, I mean, I know you pay a premium, but less than he could have if he had actually had a successor, had someone that had an equity position in the firm and was helping to grow the firm at the same time so that when they're ready to cash out, they're actually cashing out higher than if they would have just kept everything as it was and just cashed out when they were ready to retire. And usually their clients are already at that age of retirement as well. So they're already drawing down their assets. So the value of the firm's declining at the point that they retire, instead of re retiring at a high note, they're retiring kind of already on the downswing. So- uh, 100%, you know what, Shenandoah, you know this, but for the audience's um, you know, kind of understanding, um, I've done four acquisitions pretty large ones in my own practice over the last probably nine months. Um, mm -hmm. And they were all built the same way. The advisor that was selling um, needed that successor, right? So what attracted me was the young talent I had in my team that was properly developed. Does that make sense? So that's right. really what we're in the business of. I mean, we do a lot, but one of our, one of our pieces of growth is we acquire businesses, right? That or, and we already have the talent to go right into that business. So when I can go to a seller and say, meet so-and-so, he or she is a CFP, they've got 10 years of experience uh, and they, they don't have any clients right now. They have all the time in the world because they're working on one of our teams and mm -hmm. they're on the bench ready for an opportunity. Um, that's how we actually win uh, a fair amount of those deals uh, for sure. So um, I think there's, there's an opportunity there as well. And you're absolutely right. Um, a lot of deals today occur, right, in a partnership firm first, right, and then helping that practitioner continue to build his or her business while being introduced to the ultimate successor um, and adding a little of that kind of jet fuel, right? Um, so, and, and it helps the seller ultimately maximize the equity value of their business. But at the same time, it takes a lot of the risk off the table for the buyer because mm -hmm. by the time the transaction occurs, the seller's clients already know. Yeah, that transition's a snap at that point. The, and there's a, the attrition rate's nil at that point too, you know, a negligible at best, so. Exactly, but uh, I, listen, I know we're running a little short on time. I would just say this, um, and we, we could probably drill even a little deeper on this, maybe on another podcast, but you know, when you start to think about it, the big part of, you know, what I teach advisors and kind of how we run our own operation um, is around having that true CEO mentality, right? right. 
And we all talk about not working in the business, but working on the business. You have to schedule time to work on the business, right? You have to schedule time to start to think about how do I get to that next level? Because chances are, you know, what you do today is likely not going to get you where you want to go tomorrow. And you have to slowly change your habits. Um, and, you know, there's a, sometimes a gradual process to do that. I think about my first um, staff person. I tell the story how we worked in the, uh, the mezzanine level, as I like to call it, of our house. A basement. It's <laughs> a basement, but his name is Evan. And, um, you know, it did, we, didn't, we, we didn't know what we were doing then, but I was developing Evan in this sort of doctor-nurse model, right? And now his development, you know, probably creates a couple of million dollars a year, maybe even $3 million a year of profit for the organization. And he's now developed other juniors underneath him. So if you build this leadership culture, you know, our model is, right, leaders developing leaders, right? So if you yep. keep developing the people beneath you, everybody wins and no one would ever get where it is they're trying to go without the leadership from the top of the firm, right? So for most of us listening in today, you're likely the top of the firm. So if you're at the top of the firm, you have to think about who have you mentored in your firm to be a little mini you. And if you haven't done that, with all due respect, you don't have a business, you simply have a practice. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that's, that's, uh, that's okay if that's what you're looking to do. But if you're looking to build a real business that runs and grows, without you doing all the work, leadership, developing talent um, is the name of the game. No, that's a, a great way to end it uh, for us and a nice point for us to end it on. And so if, if anyone's looking to develop their next gen talent, there's a lot of resources out there. John mentioned the Ensemble Practice is a great book. And, uh, you know, we're always sharing resources on our website because leadership is a really big um, item for us and something we really preach a lot in the consulting side as well. So we really encourage you to look at your practice, think about your processes, think about your culture, and think about what you're doing to develop your next generation talent. And next week, we will have another exciting topic. We hope you will join us. Thanks, Shenandoah. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.